Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Rare treat this week. We have a studio guest. Face-to-face. Face-to-face. Mano a mano. Are you a guest today, or am I the guest, since I'm in your house? Well, you're the guest in the location, but I'm the guest on the show. That's correct. Thank you very much. That was great. And and, and Dan Calaruso, the worldwide executive editor of All Things Digital for Reuters, who also unexpectedly uh, paid for lunch today. Thank you very much. And $16 well spent. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. The decimal. Story of my life. Decimal <laughs> point in the wrong place. We have a lot to talk about today, uh, especially with uh, what's happening with the NBA. Uh, Les Alexander, tell me your perspective on well, that. The I'll Rockets stop. on the block, I think it's really interesting. One, they've been their long time, Alexander's a long time NBA owner. They're selling the team, he's selling the team, at a point in which it's very successful. You know, you typically don't find teams who are doing that well and that well positioned on the block, and I think that timing is interesting. We were talking earlier, you have a much more personal and interesting view on the Rockets and the economy that comes out of it, but up close and personal, tell us about it. Up close and personal, Les Alexander basically made his money in front of a computer screen, and we're talking about 1980s now. I'm the director of the South Florida Sports Authority in Miami, had an arena process going, got Gary Bettman, who was the NHL commissioner, but number three in the NBA, to look favorably about an expansion team that then became the Heat. Well, I feel like this is a Ken Burns. We, can we cue some Ken Burns music? Because yeah. this is going into it, deep, it, deep ancient history. It's deep like ancient history, and, and, and it's yeah. a lot more if you're yeah, interrupting yeah. the story. Okay, <laughs> let me finish the story. But Les Alexander is a front center, and we had to find somebody who would step into the shoes of who could be a franchise owner for a yet-to-be-named expansion franchise. This was before Ted Arison in Miami. And Les Alexander was our first call. He said, I'm interested in owning an NBA team, but $32.5 million expansion price at that point was too expensive, which wow. is ultimately ironic. You it can't then, even get a second-string point guard for you that You can't now. even <laughs> begin to get a scorer for an ex- associate scorer. By the way, he bought the Rockets in 1993, 25 years ago, for $85 million. Forbes has him pegged at $1.8 Six five billion now eighth in the NBA wow. with revenue about two hundred fifty million dollars. Less is seventy four years old, which a tells me how old I am, mm-hmm. and b it also tells you that this may be the right time to unload. The number one team in Asia, uh, Yao Ming, was the guy with the Rockets. Right. The that Rockets m- have, made the segue into China. Right, they have a they have a nice uh, franchise there, right. a quality team. They have international exposure. They're in a a big market, especially if oil prices come back. That market will get even richer. But you and I were talking over lunch about the Bucks and the Pistons both moving into new arenas, or, or Bucks not yet, right? right. But, the, but the, they, they, the they've Pistons got a commitment, soon, right? right? They have a commitment. Is there the same runway for this kind of appreciation? You know, this is a when you own a sports team, it's not a cash flow business, right? right. It's an ultimate long-term appreciation business. Are we through a golden era? Is there going to be another golden era, or I'm buying in now? Am I buying in at the top? where I won't get the same appreciation in 15, 20 years. What's higher than gold? Zirconium? No. Platinum? Uranium? Uranium. Uranium, Uranium, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) We're entering the uranium era after the golden era because the NBA and NFL television deals basically carry the day. We'll talk about the NFL in a minute. Right. But as far as the NBA is concerned, Milwaukee Bucks and, you know, your buddy, who is part of the whole Milwaukee Bucks experience, uh, 
He's a New Yorker. He's not necessarily my buddy, but he's a New Yorker. Yes. Who is yeah. uh, owner of the of the Bucks mm -hmm. and involved in the whole process. Um, got a new arena, committed, as well as the Illich family and the Pistons, Little Caesars Arena, right. coming back to downtown Detroit. We to talked about that earlier when yeah. it happened. Actually, we made a really, we did almost a whole segment right on right. on the re revitalization of Detroit. Revitalization of Detroit, but also how an arena can be used as a kind of a social experiment and also mm. urban renewal project. But two unique paths to ownership: mm. Illich's long-term family tradition, Little Caesars Pizza, Little Caesars Arena, right. and the Milwaukee Bucks doing an entirely different thing. Bottom line is, you buy the franchise, you get a facility, you sell a franchise. Right. Took Les Alexander 25 years, but when you look at his statements, he is stepping away. He was talking about how wonderful the NBA's been before he even has a buyer. But the bottom yeah. line is, if he didn't think the NBA was strong enough to get this done, he wouldn't have made okay, those kind of statements. One more question to you, though, before we go, uh, before we leave this topic. What's the asking price for the for the Rockets? Well, he hadn't even said, which is interesting. Okay, Forbes so what, is, what are we estimating? I, right? I'm thinking it's near nearly $2 billion. Okay, so from $2 billion, right. if I'm the guy who buys this, if I'm the hedge fund refugee or right. whomever which, which may um, who, who buys this thing, what am I going to be selling at? Am I going to get the same appreciation Alexander saw? So. Yeah, because everybody's talking about how you can't keep these values up. Free agency, television contracts, sometime it's going to cave. Every five years you have this conversation. Every five years it continues to go up. My okay. sense is it'll go up with the same kind of appreciation, except the decimal points get moved to the left or right. And as wise are you going to start at $2 billion? Well, Forbes says it's a billion six, so you've got to be higher than Forbes. And B, that's what, uh, what uh, uh, Balmer paid for the Clippers a couple of years ago. So now $2 billion is even low when you wow. consider the that's Houston market. I, I guess I sh we should have bought that team right when we had a chance. Well, and also, remember, Les Alexander stepped away from <laughs> the Heat deal because it was too expensive at $32.5 million. Wow. Look at it now. Fantastic. Kind of interesting. Let's, uh, let's move to the NFL. Here we go. Uh, interesting perspective. Uh, Green Bay Packers are the window to the world of all other 31 teams because, remember, they're a public company. They're the only ones who have to disclose anything. Right? right. And at the beginning of training camp, it is interesting because they came out with their public statements from this year in their annual report. Record revenue of about 440 million bucks, up 8% from last year. The local revenue rose about 7%. It's about 200 million. And one of the big reasons is the teams now are starting to get these annuity payments from the relocation of the Rams and the Chargers, about $27 million annually for a number of years. And all of yeah. these teams get that. 27 million split across the league. Well, $27 million a team. Right. And it's a big number for the Rams right. and the, the Chargers. That's that's uh, half for each of okay. the teams over time. And it's going to be another big number for relocation. You get a new stadium in Vegas and a new stadium in, in, Southern, uh, California. in Southern California, right. and you get these relocation payments, which is wow. which is absolutely incredible. So, But the other piece of this is television, and you know you were going to comment about that. Yeah, you and I talked about it last year. We, I prodded you into doing an NB, NFL in Crisis right. series special we did, and we just talked about the NFL with the the domestic violence, the PEDs, and, and the ratings getting crushed. And at that point, everybody was saying, well, it's just politics, it's just the political campaigns, and that's the only thing that's keeping the NFL ratings low. But apparently the whole time the league was pretty worried, and they're experimenting with new television formats, split screen for commercials, um, all kinds of different things. They have a laboratory to check, with, to, to check in on viewers. Now, so the NFL realizes that there is an issue here, that they've, the fantasy sports, as good as it's been, has cannibalized interest in the NFL to scoring plays and yards per carry. The NFL is paying eight, getting $8 billion mm -hmm. for the teams, and the Packers balance sheet shows that. Right. So uh, let's not hold a bake sale for the NFL. But yet, 
they've got to stay one step ahead of the challenge. The challenge is two things, how to maximize viewers, and second is how to make sure the eyeballs of everybody are being counted, not just television eyeballs. You're right. in this daily. Right, it's, right. it's computer eyeballs, it's iPhone eyeballs, mm -hmm. and the TV watchers are getting older, says the numbers, but the NFL watchers are not necessarily getting older. Right. Uh, so you got to figure it out. What's interesting, too, is the advertising experience across all these digital platforms is becoming a lot, we talk about this a lot here, becoming a lot more akin to a fashion magazine where right. advertisements are, are considered kind of woven into the editorial in a sense. And if you look at a game as the editorial and then a, a split screen with an advertisement or some other kind of branding that you monetize on the screen, it really does become, you don't want to break from the game, you don't want to break from the action to keep the branding in because too many people can skip by that and too many people can get around it, right? The, the NFL said we don't like the we're purists. We don't like this idea of the rotating baseball ads behind home plate. Right. But when you look at the sideline and instant replay, Microsoft iPads, Microsoft know, instant replay, yeah. it's a slippery slope, and we're inside that slope. I know. It's, so it's fantastic. It, it, it really is. It's great. To, it's, I love to see the experimentation. I love to see the evolution of the business as much as whether I'm a, I can watch the NFL anymore on a consistent basis is a different story. And I think that's their other challenge, but we can talk about that another show. Uh, and we'll talk about something else that you really surprised me at because usually I have to pull teeth and arms and everything else that you have to get you to talk about golf. But you have some interesting golf perspective this week. I like anything that's wrapped in a deal. It's like brunch. You can go to brunch with anyone because they're <laughs> eggs benedict. Yeah. If there's any, any sport wrapped in a deal, I'm happy to talk about it. It was at Apollo Global, which is kind of a roll-up of, of country clubs and resorts and golf courses, uh, made a, a huge deal, uh, $1.1 billion. Now, I, I look at re interest rates. I look at re U.S. real estate. I look at, you know, the Sun Belt, all the things we talk about at demographics. Does this mean there's a flicker of growth showing in the golf world post-Tiger Woods? First, I want to congratulate you for making the analogy between Eggs Benedict and private equity. We've never heard that before anywhere, ladies this and gentlemen. Thank a, you. This is a fertile mind. Yes, you know, it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm selectively fertile, and you've hit on it today. <laughs> yeah, the answer is the only reason you see this Apollo roll-up and similar deals is because the golf business is doing well. You had 2.5 million new golfers enter, which is the first highest mm. number since Tiger Woods Pied Piperism in really? 2000. That's a big That's number. That's a good number. That's a great 60 number. 60 yeah. million golfers worldwide. And most important, you talk to Mike Wan, the LPGA commissioner, mm. and he says 60,000 new young girls or young women adults entering the golf place every right. year, including 6.3 million total millennials. So the point is golf is burgeoning real estate, burgeoning growth, television ratings seem to be going up. Yeah. British Open this week, record purse of $10 million. Everybody seems to be focusing on that. And we have new major winners every tournament, so it's not just the superstars. Right, it's not just the superstars. And I also, when you think about, when you mentioned millennials, it is part, if you combine millennials and real estate and the demographics, it is wrapped in larger trends. It is a lifestyle element that's part, that's part of a bigger thing, right? Whether it's the Sunbelt revival or the real estate boom or whatever it might be. That's, that's part of it, and that, to me, is very interesting. By the way, the other piece of this, too, which is really important, is you mentioned social and lifestyle. And the whole idea of sports, tourism, golf, lifestyle, we're going to have a different kind of guest today, but it's themed around golf at the British Open. We've got Glenn Mack. He's an educator. He's a cook. He's a researcher, but he's also well, he's a also chef. Author. He's not a cook. He's a chef. Okay. All right. He claims that he's a cook. <laughs> he's a claims he's a cook on his on his resume. He's the head of Brightwater Culinary School in Arkansas. I did interview with him. Caught up to him at the Walmart uh, Classic uh, Championship. He'll talk about food 
as a sports tourism aspect of generating income for communities and using this tournament to help. Even more important, by the way, he's a Sovietologist. He covered the, covered the Soviet Union as a photo editor for seven years in Moscow and in New York, Time Magazine. He also, at the fall of the USSR, spent a year on the Silk Road in Central Asia studying the culinary culture and the history of the region. This is like uh, Tony Bourdain. I mean, this is this, this is, man is a renaissance This man. is better than Tony Bourdain because the guy can play golf, he can talk about golf, and here he is now, Glenn Mack. Glenn Mack, the executive director of the Brightwater Culinary School, an active partner in this event, and he'll tell us why. Glenn, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick. Well, this is my third year uh, to come out for the LPGA uh, as an individual, but more importantly, as a representative of Northwest Arkansas Community College, and specifically as Brightwater, a center for the study of food. So Octagon has partnered with us for the last three years, and each year it gets bigger and better, uh, more involved. And this year we're excited. We're actually going to be hosting it at 8th Street Market, where we're located in downtown Bentonville. This is incredibly unique from an international perspective in the sense that a sporting event, joint ventures with a food school, food entity, but on the premise that food and the study of it and the promotion of it is actually an economic development engine. Explain. Oh, absolutely right, Rick. Uh, so the idea is that 8th Street Market, which houses vendors doing artisanal food, uh, drink, so you're going to have some cured meats, wines, breads. Uh, we have a craft brewery there. Um, all of them are housed in a single market, and inside of that is a culinary school. So right there, it makes us very unique. But the, uh, how it ties to the larger community and certainly to the LPGA tournament is that we are not just a culinary school as part of a community college. Sure, we're developing the workforce, but the workforce needs are driven by the expanding economy in Northwest Arkansas. So our students can come, they can learn how to cook, they can learn how to bake, uh, and having an opportunity to participate in the bite taste of Northwest Arkansas is a great way to integrate our curriculum, our activities. So for example, this summer, it's the first year we've had summer classes and a large part of it is related to this uh, uh, tournament and festival happening. And so our students in the butchery class got to grind their own meat for Friday's burger competition. The students in the bread class made the buns and the steam buns for the pulled pork that we're doing. We've got our seasonal cookery uh, doing the slaw. We'll serve all of that out of our food truck. And so over the next two days for Thursday and Friday's events, uh, we're going to have 40 students, staff, faculty members, all supporting uh, this tournament and this festival. It's going to be a tremendous uh, opportunity for our students to be engaged with the community. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, we'll return back to that theme in a second, But the theme I'm about to tell you about. But the guy trained in China, Italy, Russia, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan, but he's got a southern accent going here in Little Rock. I don't know if you've heard that, Little Rock, Bentonville, Fayetteville, all of that. Uh, is that fake, or are you working on it? Uh, it's very much real. I completely lost my accent for 40 years when I lived outside of the state of Arkansas. I moved back two years ago, and it came back immediately. There it is, ladies. Hey, come back right now, ladies and gentlemen. So the bigger picture beyond even the tournament, it is unique for a half-million-person 
region, 10th fastest growing, one of the top 10 SMSAs, to use this industry as an economic development tool. So talk a little bit about the history of the Brightwater Culinary School, how it got started, and, and, and how it got to where it is today. Sure. Well, the school itself only opened uh, five months ago in January of 2017. But the idea for Brightwater and using food as an economic driver started 10 or more years ago. So the community visionaries, uh, community leaders with a lot of forethought came together and said, let's use food as an economic driver for education, for entertainment, uh, to develop the workforce. And it all eventually came together in a former Tyson chicken processing plant on 8th Street in Bentonville, completely repurposed an adaptive reuse project, uh, you know, staying true to our heritage and uh, having an amazing site where our students can work uh, shoulder to shoulder with entrepreneurs, owners, managers of some artisanal and local food production companies. So you weren't here, but tell the story a little bit again from the business perspective. I'm assuming that as the leaders got together and understood that food is an important part of economic development, and Tyson's was here, which was fortuitous, and the Northwest Arkansas Council was here, which is also important, how did all of that tie together? Oh, it was all integral. Uh, Northwest Arkansas Council uh, commissioned a regional food assessment, and part of that regional food assessment, uh, of course, doing a research and study on the potential for food as an economic driver. But one of the recommendations that came out of that was to create a school that not only uh, buffered the workforce, but also could help serve as a model of strengthening the regional f uh, food system. And also, in my world, in sports development facilities and why sporting events are important, we always talk about quality of life, and a byproduct is industry relocation. Well, between P&G, a more, 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 more direct uh, Tyson's and Walmart, the industry relocation um, has other reasons to do it, but um, a, uh, a culinary diverse community with high-end food options I assume, has its benefits as far as bringing more industry and bringing more corporations into town as well? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, Northwest Arkansas has always been a great place to live. I was born here. Uh, I spent uh, several decades traveling the world, and the first opportunity I had to come back, I took it. And so you can certainly look back and say, well, the pivotal moment was in 2011 when Crystal Bridges opened, and then you had an, uh, an amazing world-class museum that drew uh, the tourists, drew educators, scholars, artists to the area. And then from that, everything else began to continue. We already had an amazing foundation of uh, a great place to work and live. Uh, and then some of those amenities uh, that go along with tourism and economic development, such as hotels and restaurants and nightclubs, began to follow along. And now Bentonville and the rest of Northwest Arkansas is just a jewel for not only tourism, but more importantly, for living here. The guy sounds like a Chamber of Commerce guy who's remorphed back into a Southern accent, ladies and gentlemen. So get this, get this. He was originally trained as a Sovietologist, and he covered the Soviet Union as a photo editor for seven years in Moscow and New York with Time Magazine. I'm not done. After the fall of the USSR, he spent a year on the Silk Road in Central Asia studying the culinary culture and history of the region. Can food bring us closer together? 
Well, I certainly think so. And, you know, some of my friends and, and uh, uh, colleagues with overactive imaginations actually think I'm deep undercover uh, working in a what, what profession. Are you, <laughs> what are you covering? <laughs> but uh, obviously, uh, to answer your question, food is clearly the most important thing in my life um, to bring together family. Uh, and that's kind of how we develop the theme around Brightwater. It's food is business. Food is wellness, and uh, uh, food as um, craft. And so those three elements come together. So when you're sitting at a table with your family and you're eating every day and you're preparing food together, those are the memories that last, not a trip that you took and, and, uh, and, and a vacation that you had. It's those day-to-day memories where you're sitting around the table. My kids uh, are, are, are grown up. They're spending the summer in Spain, and they're saying, Dad... The food is awesome here, but it's not as good as around our table. I'm like, well, thank you. It's, uh, uh, he evaluates everything in this world based on quality of food, which is the way it should be. And you're not going undercover anywhere because you can tell how passionate you are about what you're currently doing. Glenn Mack, Brightwater, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ricaro, sports professor, very unique view of the world of food and economic development. Speak with you soon. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso. <laughs>